Welcome back, my friends, to the Religious Studies Project. It's Monday. I'm David Robertson. And I'm Christopher Cotter. And we are the Religious Studies Project, brought to you by the BASR and NAASR. And this week, we're very pleased to be bringing you an interview with Joseph Blankholm on the permutations of secularism. And this is an interview recorded for us by our good friend, Dusty Hosley. So, Dusty, tell us what it's about. Well, we're here in Joe Blankholm's office at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Uh, Joe Blankholm is Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. His research focuses on atheism and secularism, primarily in the United States. Using qualitative, quantitative, and historical research methods, Joe's work shows how the boundaries between the secular, spiritual, and religious have shifted over time, and how those shifts impact the ways we think about religion and what counts as religious. He has published an article in the Journal for the Social Scientific Study of Religion called The Political Advantages of a Polysemous Secular, and has another forthcoming in the same journal, which he co-authored with Alfredo Garcia. He also has chapters forthcoming in edited volumes about secularism and religious indifference, and he is currently working on an essay on atheism for the Oxford Encyclopedia of American Religion. He is also the co-founder and co-chair of the American Academy of Religion Secularism and Secularity Group. In this interview, we first focus on the origins of the term secularism, the proliferation of its meanings and the uses to which it is put in Anglo-American contexts. Then we'll discuss uses of the terms secularism and the secular today, particularly using a specific case study from his research on American non-believer organizations. Joe, thank you for participating with the Religious Studies uh, Project podcast series, and uh, thank you. Let's uh, let's begin. Can you tell us about the term secularism, uh, its development over time, uh, the term secular in the Anglo-American context? Yeah, sure. There, it's interesting uh, how many meanings these terms have and, and how those meanings relate. Secular is the much older term. Um, it, it comes from Latin. It comes from a word meaning cycle, uh, sometimes 100 years. And it's also used to distinguish the temporal world from the eternal uh, so there's a world in, in which is subject to time, and there's a world that's not God being outside of time. And you also can can talk about um, secular clergy, secular priests, lay priests being non-monastic. So they're people who are out in the world. And, and in that sense, it's a it's a term that can refer to to that which is of the world or or out in the world. And you can also secularize church holdings, or you can secularize schools, which is to sort of bring them as property or uh, as an entity into the possession of the state or a common possession or something like that. And then secularism as an ism is not nearly as old. That that term is first coined uh, in 1851 by a man named George Jacob Holyoke, who's a who's a British freethinker, and he's the editor of this this journal called The Reasoner. And in on June 25th, actually, 1851, he's responding to a letter written by a guy writing under a pseudonym. The pseudonym's Edward Search, but it's actually this guy, W.H. Ashurst, who's, uh, who's the lawyer and one of the advisors to Robert Owen, and then is also uh, somebody who really gives some money to help support Holyoke and The Reasoner. So they're having a a conversation in public that's kind of a private conversation between them. And 
Search or Ashurst uh, is sort of suggesting secular risk as a potential term, and Holyoke, as the editor, sort of takes this up as a good idea. And from then on, it it really gains life, and Holyoke becomes associated with secularism and and vice versa. And secularism is worth clarifying what it means in this context. It's it's fair to call it a social movement. It's fair to call it a philosophy. It's um, when he refers to secularism, he he could mean something like agnosticism and he could mean something like humanism, but neither term really is available to him. So the reason I say he could mean agnosticism is that term's not coined until 1869 by Thomas Huxley, but it's Holyoke doesn't want to call it atheism. He doesn't want to have that much ontological certainty. What secularism is, is it's focused on this world there's a, there's a value or ethical side to it. There's an axiological element. So there's, there's a way in which it's also kind of like what we now call humanism. But again, humanism is not available to him because humanism, this is not really talked about, but humanism really comes out of the Comteans, the, those who follow Auguste Comte and his religion of humanity um, in the 19th century. And the Comteans toward the end of that century um, start to, as, as they become involved in a sort of nascent ethical culture movement in Britain, start to refer to themselves as humanists. And that's really where we get our sort of organized non-believer humanism today. So Holyoke secularism is, is kind of like this. It's not, it's not quite an atheism in that sense. It's, it's more ontologically open or points to a contingency. And it has this ethical component and it sees itself focused on this world and it's positive and it's affirmative. And he's really looking for an alternative to to what he sees as, as the sort of overwhelming negativity of atheism. And he ends up being in debates uh, with, with others later in the century over this. So, um, I don't know. I think that that history is so fascinating that, that the way that Holyoke's secularism is, is pretty novel in that moment. So can you actually elaborate a little more? You also mentioned it as a social movement or could be perceived as a social movement. What do you mean by that? Oh, yeah. So there are a bunch of people who call themselves secularists. They also call themselves other things. They call themselves free thinkers. It's, it's like it is today. You can call yourself a lot of different things in this moment. Um, you know, one of the best ways to think about it is the way in which it transfers to the United States. Because this actually... This actually starts to point to one of the problems of secularism, that it means multiple things. So there's this guy, um, Francis Ellingwood Abbott, and he's an interesting figure for a lot of reasons. He sort of gets his PhD from Harvard. He's moving in the same circle as the metaphysical club people. He's uh, the sort of eminent the, uh, historian of American religion, Sidney Ostrom, writes his dissertation, this massive two-volume dissertation that took me forever to scan off microfilm. Um, he's, he writes a book called Scientific Theism. He's a really interesting thinker, but he's also fairly activist and, and disgruntled at a lot of moments in his life. And he's in this American secularist movement. He's in this American free thought movement, which has extended out of Holyoke's England and, and has influenced the United States. And they're reacting to some pretty concrete problems that I think people, um, who are, avowed secularists are reacting to today. So that they're talking about problems like prayer at high school graduations and they're organizing into that or the 
there's a group called the NRA in this moment, in, in around the Civil War and immediately following, which is the National Reform Association, so a different NRA. But what they want is a Christian amendment to the Constitution. So there are secularists who are opposing this Christian amendment. And Abbott ends up becoming the editor of a journal called The Index. And writing in The Index in, in, uh, in 1876, he writes this essay called The Unfinished Window, where he distinguishes very carefully between two types of secularism. He calls it philosophical secularism and political secularism. And as far as I can tell, this is the first time someone in print articulates this distinction and, and equates secularism with the separation of church and state, which he also does. So here we have two different things. It's important to recognize there's a distinction here. Other people have written on this too. This is, this is not really my novel intervention by any means. But there's two kinds of things bearing the name secularism. There's Holyoke secularism, which is really more than a philosophy. It is a movement. It has these ethical elements. It's a this-worldly focus, as he sometimes talks about it. And then there's this thing, separation of church and state. And, and they become able to be unified through this uh, labor of Abbott, through the way in which he both draws a distinction but uses the same word in order to describe both. And I think this is the fun thing that we inherit. This is the complicated secularism that then we can use in various kinds of ways and and accomplish accomplish work. So now that we've set up some of the historical context moving from England now to America, uh, looking at the 20th century, how has this term been used or mobilized by different groups or individuals with different agendas to articulate? Uh, already we have sort of a philosophy or ethical orientation. We have separation of church and state. Uh, are there other permutations of the secular in the 20th century? Yeah, there are actually. There's a there's a conference which called the Jerusalem Conference um, in the late 1920s, which I believe 27, which is... Which is sort of a launch point for the ecumenical movement. And secularism coming out of there refers to, how would you put it, like the eviction of God from the world. So secularism is a kind of dark inversion of Holyoke's secularism. So from a this-worldly focus to uh, this world bereft of divinity, which is, which is dark. And so there's a, there's a sort of global allied church movement to bring God back to the world. And so secularism becomes um, a kind of bugaboo because it isn't being taken up in the same positive ways that it was in the 19th century. And then following World War II, it begins to take up its positive valences again, but not in the way that Holyoke intended, but more in the sense of political secularism. So it starts to mean separation of church and state as it's prevalent meaning really only after World War II, which is interesting. I think it's an open question historically as to why that happens. And at the same time, um, humanism, which is something that I'm arguing comes out of um, Comtean religion of humanity, it also takes off in the United States, largely Unitarians who are pushing it, uh, and it becomes religious humanism. If you look at the Religious Manifesto in 1933, that's really quite clear. But in this post-World War II moment, you also start to see secular humanism as a bugaboo um, showing up in different kinds of speeches and sermons. And then that 
really evolves into a, a positive, a positive thing much later. So you inherit such a mixed bag of things when you're talking about secularism and what it means for different people and the, and the positive and negative connotations. I think, yeah, they, there's an interesting way in which I can give an example of this. So there's an article I wrote that I, that I published in 2014, which you mentioned when you were introducing me. And it was, it really arose out of just several aha moments for me. I was, it was, uh, I think it was the first of October in 2012. And I was at this congressional briefing that was organized by a lobbying group called the Secular Coalition uh, for America. And it's, it's a group that brings together a whole bunch of non-believer groups that advocate for various types of non-theism. And then it lobbies Congress and it lobbies the executive branch um, in order to advocate for a dual mission for the separation of church and state and for avowed non-theists. And that dual mission, I think, is that's, that's that inheritance. That's that inheritance that we get from Abbott or that Abbott sort of very consciously brought together of separation of church and state on the one hand and something like Holyoke secularism, a kind of disworldly focus and an identity that's organized in a movement that is non-theistic. And so I'm at this briefing and it's got all different kinds of people in it. It's a lot of house staffers because there's an election that year. So actually a lot of, a lot of Congress people, they're not there. And one of the speakers is, uh, is Chip Lupu, who's a, great separation of church and state um, attorney and and thinker about these issues. And you also have people who are identified as humanists and you have uh, people who haven't thought very much about these issues before. You have hardline atheists and they're using the term secular and secularism a lot. And I'm listening closely and writing furiously and noticing that there are these moments in which people are talking to each other using these terms secular and secularism, and they're talking about two different things, but they're agreeing with one another. And then sometimes they're using the terms completely differently and it's creating confusion and they really aren't able to understand one another. And so what that does is you can, you can really actually build coalitions. And this is why I talk about it as being incredibly productive as a moment and it having political advantages that it's polysemous, that it has more than one meaning, because you can have people be very productively confused. So this confusion around the secular, I mean, I don't know, we think of maybe confusion is always necessarily bad or something, but in this case, I think it really, it really glosses over certain differences and allows coalitions to form. And to understand this better, you can think there's a group. It starts in 1947 as Protestants United for Separation of Church and State. Now it's Americans United uh, for the set for the separation of church and state. And, uh, it's, it's direct executive director is, uh, is a UCC minister and, and, uh, they have coalitions with religious people and non-religious people and they're advocating for secularism. And you can go to them if you're the secular coalition for America and you say, we're natural partners. You know, we both want secularism. And then you can go also to the Baptists who have historically supported separation. It's, Jefferson is writing to the Danbury Baptist in 1802 when he appears to coin that phrase, the wall of separation between church and state. And you could say, hey, you guys like secularism too. We all like secularism. But then if you're going to go fundraise because you're the secular coalition, you can say, well, we promote secularism. 
we're looking out for you. We're looking out for this non-theistic base. And you can, you can really do two things at the same time. It's incredibly powerful. And I don't think it stops just among lobbyists. It's actually, there are a lot of other arenas where you can see this polysemy at work. So you discussed folks who want separation of church and state. And some of the non-believer organizations that you studied also want to evacuate religion from the public sphere. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about how the, the term secularism has been applied to that and some of the you know, organizations or framing of secularism vis-a-vis uh, ridding the public sphere of religion? Yeah, I think that's an interesting kind of open question that in some ways demands explanation. So how do you get uh, from discussions of a public sphere to discussions of a secular public sphere. And that's something that seems to happen not in Rawls, but in the reception of John Rawls. And I don't completely know how that works. But, you know, there's another thing that's really interesting talking to organized non-believers and especially certain kinds of humanists. Not all of them want a secular public sphere in which you have to bracket your religious commitments because some of them are actually quite self-conscious of the ways in which... um, Secularism is, or humanism is, a kind of avowed position. It's what the historian Todd Weir, working on Germany, calls the fourth confession when he's talking about free thought. When he's talking about 19th century Germany, and he means different, a couple of different things by this. He means, you know, on the one hand, that, that there is this thing, free thought, that is a kind of a position. It's like a set of ontological commitments, epistemological commitments, value commitments. Um, but also that it it has a certain form that is like Christianity. And so I think when you're talking about what, like different faith commitments, you're talking about different certain assertions about what exists, how you come to know it, how language relates to it, you're, it's hard to bracket that. It's incredibly difficult to bracket that. There are, the, Kent Greenewalt's written the book where he tries to talk about exactly how you should go about that. And it's it's really just a difficult thing to do. So, yes, there are absolutely, um, I'd say most, the vast majority of people who are organizing as non-believers, promoting secularism in its various senses, uh, want a secular public sphere. But there is a minority that I talk to who that is very self-conscious about their own commitments and sort of their contingency and the way in which they cannot be bracketed and and how a secular public sphere sort of demands a, a double consciousness, as Craig Calhoun has described it, where, uh, you know, if you're religious, you have to have your religious commitments and then your secular face. But if you're secular, you have your secular commitments and your secular face, and you're not doubled. So for some of the other folks, secularism means something like atheism. Uh, some scholarship even will refer to secularists and atheists interchangeably or as a synonymous term. So can you describe a little bit about how the term secular or secularism got applied to things like atheism? Yeah, I suppose it's a bit ironic if you think about how hard Holyoke fought to avoid it becoming synonymous with atheism and how in some ways it was coined actually out of a desire to have a word that's not atheism. Um, he says he was actually inspired by, there's a, there's a very brilliant woman in the mid-19th century, Harriet Martineau, who's uh, got a set of correspondence with a, a gentleman, Henry Atkinson. And uh, Holyoke's reading that, and, and their correspondence is what he says inspires him to realize that atheism is too strong a position and he needs to articulate something else. And that's what secularism arises out of. So in that sense, it's ironic 
I think that uh, secularism would become so synonymous with atheism. But this is sort of the challenge of atheism as well, is it has to has to do such a double work. It has to it has to be both a, a thing that negates and then a name for something that also asserts. And that's really challenging. Uh, and so I think, you know, more than I see secularism synonymous with atheism, I increasingly see secularism associated with all manner of not religious. And this is tricky, right? Because, like, let's say you... Um, identify, don't identify with any particular religion, but you pray regularly and you have beliefs that we would call religious because they resemble, if not a traditional form of Christianity, something close enough to it. Um, are you secular? You're among the religiously unaffiliated. You're among the NLNES nuns. Are you thus secular? In some of the recent literature, you absolutely are. I mean, you, there are sociologists who are defining you as secular. So I think secularism is actually becoming more capacious before our eyes right now. It's being performed into becoming a more capacious category. And I think as far as I'm concerned, I, you know, for better or for worse, I don't, I don't know. And I don't, I don't know how much I care. It's going to, it's going to sort of be what it is. And I, and I, my position is to sort of adopt a similar mode to when I'm in that congressional briefing, which is to sort of watch the ways in which it, it works. So I think it's worth now thinking about like, what, it, what is the work we're accomplishing when we're making secularism contain, um, these other adjacent categories, when it starts to contain what we're also calling the spiritual, what kind of, what kind of work is being accomplished there? So looking at these various meanings we've looked at from separation of church and state to this philosophical ethical orientation, uh, secularism is meaning something like atheism or non-religion more generally, uh, uh, secularist identity constructions. Mm. Uh, how does examining all these shifting meanings, these permutations of the secularism help us to understand the secular, and understand even religion. Oh, yeah. Well, how does it get us to understand the secular? That's a fun tautological game, right? Where we get to, like, name the thing and then say what the contents hold and then say when we're talking using that name, we're actually talking about the thing it points to. So, oh, that's, that's almost too difficult to question. I might, I might sort of... I want to answer you by way of uh, my experience that I have uh, reading so many paper proposals for the secularism and secularity group at the AAR, because I, I watch the terms get deployed variously. And even among really sophisticated proposals, you might see a slippage between one way of using secularism and another. And and I think that's really fascinating. And, and really what we see more than anything else is secularism as religion making to borrow from the title of that really excellent volume, uh, Arvind and Mandare volume, um, which is drawing on the Asadian insights of formations of a secular and, and the Asadi and the people who have worked in that lineage, um, since that book was first published, who, who think about really starting with political secularism and separation of church and state and thinking about the ways in which secularism is a mode in which religion is made and controlled and sort of brought into being so that those parts of the world it points to can um, be manipulated in service of some type of power 
in, in this in this body of literature, uh, probably a, a kind of colonial power or a soft power in the wake of colonialism, um, imperial power. So I think that that usage really prevails, but it also makes me a bit sad to see other usages so foreclosed or to see these like um, maybe accidental elisions occurring between one mode of secularism and another, because I'd love to see more papers on atheism at the AAR. I'd love to see more papers on uh, identity formation among the who, who, the people we might call the non-religious or the people we might call non-believers. And, and, for that to be able to be talked about as also the study of the secular and secularism and secularity, and for us to be able to sort of carefully distinguish it among these valences. But also, I think that the next great work is really needing to show how they're related and how we came to, um, how it was that we would bequeath this mess, uh, which is a fun mess. I think it's great. But it, it's just too bad sometimes when certain fruitful arenas or certain fruitful avenues are, are foreclosed because there's so much focus on um, one particular understanding of secularism. Well, Joe, this is a wonderful introduction to the various uses of secular and secularism uh, through history and the contemporary moment, uh, some of the scholarship about these terms. So we thank you very much for participating. Uh, thank you. Thanks. Excellent to hear from Dusty and Joe there. Um, complimenting nicely we've had quite a few interviews when i when i pitched that interview to uh, dusty was a little bit uh, well you know w will it not be covering the same ground as a few of the other podcasts but um i think you'll agree that it covers new ground and tackles the question in an interesting way and um what were some of the other podcasts that it uh, kind of tied in with there, David? Well, there's a few I can think of. I mean, uh, Tim Fitzgerald talking about, I think the, the subject of the interview is actually mystification, but he talks about the the idea of religion being this discursive unit, mm. which means different things in different contexts. I'm also thinking of the interview I did with Tomoko Masuzawa, mm -hmm. where she talked about the birth of the secular university, and we find actually that the secular university was... was um, for religious reasons rather mm -hmm. than secular uh, politics. There's also um, Tariq Madud on uh, secularism and se uh, secularist states and secular states and the difference yeah. there. Um, Koki von Stuckrand on discursive approaches. Of course. Tom Flynn on secular humanism. Johannes Quack on religious indifference and a sort of relational approach to non-religion and our roundtable on on non-religion as well um which and steve sutcliffe raises some of these very issues there i believe yeah so, so it, it adds to a, a nice pool of um material on discourse on categories indeed absolutely um Next week, we have mm -hmm. a, a very interesting interview. This is the fruits of our recent trip down to the Open University where we um, did one of our Digital Humanities events, which this time included an afternoon workshop on, on producing podcasts and doing interviews. And as a part of that, we recorded an interview, um, both recorded and, and videoed an interview with um, one of the participants, Alison Robertson, and the interview was by another one of the participants who's, uh, you're going to be hearing a fair bit of in the near future, uh, Alad Thomas. And the interview is on the subject of 
um, BDSM as religious experience. Can you just say, you know, re- re-emphasize that? BDSM as religious experience. Right. Yeah, you heard that right. That's right. Now, um, we couldn't resist that. It was an utter clickbait, I think you'll, uh, you'll, you'll agree. But actually, it's a very interesting interview and um, something that we haven't really touched upon at all um, during our, what is it, four years now? Mm, this is our fifth year, yeah. Um, and so yeah. This is also the fruits of the money that we've got from you guys using our Amazon affiliates links, um, .ca.com and .co.uk. We've been able to afford a, a full video rig, which we're now beginning to experiment with. Yeah, so um, you will be able to get the podcast as normal next week, but also, all being well, um, you should be able to get the video both on the site and through our YouTube channel. Absolutely, and I'm working to bring you some more uh, video content on the YouTube channel all the time. But don't forget also, at the end of every month, I remaster a batch of our old episodes, which are then uploaded to um, to YouTube. So you should be seeing um, every so often a new batch of our older um, interviews there. And over time, we'll make all of those old interviews available. Uh, we haven't mentioned as ever, Facebook, Twitter, Google+, we've already talked about YouTube, iTunes and other portals. And um, the the Amazon links that David was talking about there. So .co.uk, .com and .ca. Also, um, it's important to flag up our poster competition. Um, you can check out our website and social media feeds for more details on that. But if you're a budding graphic designer, budding artist, or know someone who is, who's maybe not in the religious studies milieu, but might like a chance to approach an interesting topic in a, in a unique and inspired way... Um, check out the website, get in touch at editors at religiousstudiesproject.com and this is for the opportunity to have uh, hundreds of posters and flyers made up with your design and distributed to universities across the globe. We look forward very much to seeing your submissions and hopefully we'll be sharing a few of the best ones on social media at some point during our summer hiatus, which will be coming up... The end of June. uh, End of June, yes, when we take a few months off to go to conferences and catch up and sleep and sleep and various uh, non-religious studies things but uh, i'm talking of which it's time for us to go chris so anything to say to the audience just thank you so much for listening